If you have a Bible, you can open it to Proverbs chapter 8, and that's where we'll be this morning. Once again, in Proverbs, we've seen in past weeks some of the specifics of Proverbs regarding worship training, and also specifics regarding our finances, both wealth and poverty, making some observations that we had from our mission trip to Ecuador. And there are lots of other specifics in the book of Proverbs, of course, many, many other specifics. But today we're going to look at the big picture, really. And what we're about to read here in Proverbs 8 is poetry. So I want to be sure that you hear it that way. You're about to hear a poem, although it doesn't rhyme. Don't be disappointed in that. I'm not going to try to make it rhyme. But it is poetry, and so hear it that way. It begins, as it were, sort of at street level, and then it soon ascends into the heights of heaven, only to then come in for a a landing, so to speak, with a broad application for all who would hear it. So you young ones, you children among us, you young disciples and Christians, as you listen, see if you can tell in this poem, who is speaking to you? Who is it that's speaking this poem to you? Proverbs chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasuries." The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before He had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When He established the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, 
rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And we pray. O Lord, we pray, as we always do, that you would grant to us your spirit so that we might see and understand your gospel in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We be seated. Fourteen years ago, on our honeymoon trip, Mary and I traveled to a small island in the Caribbean, which at the time was really, I think, just beginning to become popular. There wasn't a whole lot there. But we stayed in a resort, and at one point we decided we wanted some local flavor, and so we asked about it. We could just kind of imagine a romantic dinner. We could almost hear the, the Caribbean steel drums and, and uh, the sizzling pineapple jerk chicken on a hot grill. You know, we could just imagine all the ambiance that must have come with the local flavor. And so we asked, where might we find a restaurant like that? And the answer was quick. Rafi's. Rafi's is where you need to go. Okay, how do we get to Rafi's? And so the directions began. Get back in your car and go that way down the highway. And it's going to curve around a few times. And you're going to come to a fork in the road. You need to stay to the right. You're going to pass a goat farm somewhere along the way. And when you come to a tree, turn left. And that was it. Well, it was already dusk, and so we were a little unsure with no street names and no highway numbers. There were no such things on this island. And with no specifics, really, other than just some kind of vague landmark ideas that we feared might leave us in the dark, we were really unsure if a fork in the road, if a goat farm along the way, and if a tree that we might or might not find would ever reveal for us a romantic honeymoon dinner. Fortunately for us, it did. But for many others, I'm sure it did not. The Bible has seemed like that to many people throughout history. And still today, it does to many people who go to it for help or for insight or for encouragement and inspiration and maybe even seeking after salvation of some kind. What they find, if they read diligently, if they begin to read from the beginning, is an animal skin covering in the garden, some patriarchal family disputes, a bronze snake up on a pole, some countercultural prophets, some selfish priests and greedy kings, and even some cryptic poetry, and they begin to wonder, where do these landmarks lead? Are they going to take me anywhere? What do they reveal anyway? There are no street names, there are no highway numbers, only some goat farms and trees where maybe you ought to turn or maybe not, it seems, and they're not really sure what to make of it. Proverbs is sort of one of those places in Scripture where one might get confused, and yet at the same time, ironically, 
It's one of the most appealing books in the Bible because of all the the pithy little sayings of application of wisdom, of advice that it has for anyone who reads it at any time in history, in any culture. Anyone can read these and find interest in them and find application for their own life. And so they take them and make use of them almost as though it were a how-to manual for life. But of course, we have to say that Proverbs is not here just as a how-to manual, right? It's here for the sake of revealing redemption. It's here to reveal redemption. After all, Jesus said himself that all Scripture points us to him in some way. All Scripture foreshadows his coming in the Old Testament. All Scripture looks back on his coming in the New Testament. All that prepares us in some way for the coming of a Redeemer, one who would bring redemption for God's people. After all, before time as we know it began, God had already formed His plan to redeem His people. That is, to restore them, to reclaim them, to redeem them for Himself. Even before the need was evident, the plan was already in place. And the beauty of Scripture... And really the beauty of history, as one looks back on it and reads about it with eyes to see, is to see how God has creatively and thoroughly and progressively revealed His redemptive plan as He goes along. And Proverbs is a very important step along the way. It's a very important element, a poetic one, as it were, of that revelation. And so... While it's not just a vague landmark for us to wonder about, it's a more secure landmark. How does Proverbs reveal redemption for us? I want to give you a few sort of hooks, as it were, to hang your hat on as we go along so that the vagaries of it maybe will become a little more clear. One is this. In Proverbs, redemption is revealed in the mystery of metaphor. Redemption is revealed in the mystery of metaphor. Now, I'm an engineer by prior training. Don't laugh. Because that does not mean that I have no ability to appreciate artistic value. I promise you, I do. Just ask my daughter about the butterfly that I drew after she taught us how to do them. I have ability to do that. In fact, I remember well my ninth grade English class in which I... I think I first really began to realize that I enjoyed reading novels and especially trying to sort through some of the themes and poetic devices that a good author could work into them and and, uh, that would help you understand the story in a more creative way. And I don't remember the title of the book we were reading at the time, but we were reading a story, a novel, about some school-aged boys and kind of their coming-of-age experiences. And Our teacher was trying to facilitate a discussion in the classroom, and as you may imagine, trying to do that regarding a novel with a bunch of 14-year-old kids can be a bit of a nightmare for a teacher, I'm sure. And so she was asking us questions, and she asked the question, okay, class, so what about the river? What did the river symbolize in the novel? And it was silent. There was no one to answer, and so I raised my hand, and she called on me, and I said, you know, it seems to me that The river 
It's a freshwater river running through the campus where they are and out into the ocean where it's salty. It seems to kind of represent to me the transition from fresh to salty, the transition from innocence to complication of their life going from childhood to adulthood. And she said, that's right. And I kind of sat there and silently crowed about my, my artistic prowess. And across the room, I could see my football player teammates scowling at me. What? Where did you get that? You did not really say that. Some of you may want to kind of scowl at me for bringing up the notion of a metaphor in the Bible. But it's clearly here. This is one of those elements that God uses to teach us and to reveal to us his redemptive plan. And so you need a simple lesson. What is a metaphor? Half of you have forgotten and half of you never knew. What is a metaphor after all? A metaphor is a poetic device that uses comparison to show how two things that are not alike in most ways are alike in one important way. For example, here's a metaphor for you. As they drove, the highway ahead was a black ribbon stretching out across the land. There's a metaphor. Okay, a highway and a ribbon have nothing to do with each other. They're nothing alike, except for in one important way. Imagining a black ribbon stretched across the land helps you to visually see in your mind's eye what that highway must have looked like, and so the metaphor accomplishes its purpose. The metaphor is a creative feature. It's even a beautiful feature that God uses in Scripture to reveal redemption for us, and Proverbs does it twice. It actually presents for us a double metaphor. There are two. One is a lady named Wisdom, and the other is a woman who is not a lady named Folly. Those are the two metaphors it presents. And there are no real such characters in the Bible, but they're figures that present to the reader a choice between life and death. A choice between redemption on the one hand and destruction on the other. Redemption is revealed in the mystery of the metaphor. Chapter 8, which we've read, is a great place to see that, especially as the highlight of it begins in verse 22. This is what we read in verse 22 and following. The Lord possessed me at the very beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. And then she continues on. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he assigned to the sea its limit, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight. Now, I would imagine that in the centuries before Jesus walked and talked on earth in his earthly ministry, in those centuries before, it was probably the very astute and faithful prophet or scribe who saw the Redeemer that's symbolized in this poem. I'm sure that there were some, but, but maybe not many. I mean, my guess is that to the average Hebrew reader of this poetry, while it is a very beautiful poem, surely was to them as well, it was maybe just a vague landmark, a goat farm, a tree along the way. Which way should I turn or should I turn at all? But now fast forward a few hundred years. There are two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in the days prior, Jesus, who had for 
some three years, been walking and talking and teaching and performing miracles among them, bringing the kingdom of God to bear and bringing the gospel to them in verbal and visual and physical form, had been crucified, dead, and buried. And now these two disciples are on the road to Emmaus, and the resurrected Jesus, alive again, joins with them. And Luke, in his gospel, chapter 24, explains to us how Jesus then interpreted to these two disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, may we speculate just a minute. We're not told by Luke where he turned, but he turned to all the scriptures, which, of course, at his time was the Old Testament. And perhaps he turned to Proverbs 8 somewhere along the way as he taught them and explained this poem to them. And they must have said, yeah, that's it. You know, after all, we heard John, that apostle, waxing poetic one time. Do you remember what he was saying? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And we wondered, what did John mean by that? Maybe he was just having a bad dream and talking in his sleep. After all, John sometimes could be kind of weird and sketchy times. We didn't really always know what he was saying, but now it makes sense because it seems that maybe John saw Proverbs 8 and he recognized that ages ago, before the beginning of the earth, you were there, the master workmen of creation. And so the metaphor fulfilled its purpose. And even sometime later, Paul would write to the Colossians this, Christ is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In fact, Paul would then write to the Corinthians, God made Christ to be wisdom itself. Again, there's poetry here, and there's some poetic license. We're not to take it absolutely literally. It's not as though God created Jesus, or that Jesus wasn't born before the creation. He always was as one of the three of the Trinity. And yet the poem explains to us so that we can understand there he was at the very beginning, from the very beginning of creation, that all things were made through him and all things hold together in him, that Christ is wisdom itself, Paul writes. So Jesus is Lady Wisdom of Proverbs. So you young Christians, I asked you the question a while ago. You're not finished yet. I want to hear your answer. I ask you, who is speaking to you in this poem? Who knows? Who's speaking to you in this poem? Jesus is. Jesus is speaking this poem to you. He is Lady Wisdom. After all, He is wisdom itself, and it's wisdom that's speaking this poem to you. Jesus is the one speaking because in Proverbs, redemption is revealed in the mystery of the metaphor. Don't miss the metaphor. But also in Proverbs, here's another hook to hang your hat on, so to speak. Redemption is revealed in the fruit of wisdom. Redemption is revealed in the fruit of wisdom. Verse 19, my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. And my yield is better than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries 
with the fruit of wisdom, I think it's safe to assume. And that fruit is then spelled out for us in the rest of the book of Proverbs and all of those sayings that follow describing the fruit of wisdom. There's that long list of practical specifics here in the book of Proverbs, the fruit of wisdom. And I think it's maybe you could think of it as an Old Testament version of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul gives in Galatians. What is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, Paul wrote, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and so, though imperfectly, they exhibit the fruit more and more and more as they go along. Now, the book of Proverbs is attributed, you probably know, mostly to Solomon, who became king of Israel in about 1,000 B.C., roughly 1,000 years before the coming of Christ. And Solomon was about 20 years old when he became the king of Israel. Now, if you can imagine, and this was not uncommon for a king to be so young when he took the throne, but if you can imagine at the age of 20 yourself being the sovereign of a nation, albeit a small one in terms of what we might think is about the size of the city of Dallas, population-wise, being the sovereign of that population of people at the age of 20 over the military and the governmental policies and the foreign relations that were all involved in that. If you can imagine the daunting task that that would be. And Solomon, as surely other kings had done before, confessed that he didn't know what he was doing. He prayed to God saying, I'm only a little child. He said, I don't know how to go out or how to come in. And so Solomon wisely prayed for wisdom. And the Lord was so glad to receive that request that he answered it bountifully and gave Solomon wisdom and much, much more. He granted the request and remarkably in God's providence, he used that request and answered prayer to fill in a piece of the puzzle, a piece of the revelation of redemption by providing for us the book of Proverbs. Because one of the first things that Solomon saw in his wisdom was this. The fear of the Lord, the reverence, the awe, and the respect that's due only to God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning point from which all wisdom comes. All the fruits of it fall from there. And there are many fruits of wisdom, but all of it is born from the fear of the Lord. Now, this is an important element of this. You can't get this backwards, okay? It's not an apple tree because it bears apples. Rather, it bears apples because it's an apple tree. Likewise, one is not born again because he bears the fruit of wisdom. Rather, one bears the fruit of wisdom because he's born again. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning. Apart from that, None of it matters. Apart from the fear of the Lord, any apparent wisdom is merely man-made. So what is the fruit of wisdom? The fruit of wisdom is love. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. The The fruit of wisdom is 
Likewise, joy. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. It's peace. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. It's patience. A man's wisdom gives him patience, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's kindness. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. It's goodness. So you will walk in the ways of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. It's faithfulness. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. It is gentleness. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And it's self-control. When words are many, the proverb says, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? The, the fruits of wisdom are many. The list is much longer than that. But the Proverbs sum it up this way. It says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. And who is the wise one in Proverbs? Well, you already know. It's Jesus. Jesus is the wise one in Proverbs, the one who captures souls. Now, Proverbs is not a how-to manual for living a successful life. We have to recognize that many use it that way, and oftentimes we're tempted to use it that way if we read the Proverbs. And we have to admit as well that those who do see the common grace benefits of manufactured righteousness. But there's no life in that. There's no redemption in that. There's no redemption in doing that. There's no reclaiming of broken souls. There's no softening of cold, stony hearts. There are only band-aids placed on a terminal disease to manufacture righteousness by using Proverbs as a how-to manual. No, Proverbs rather is this. It's a checkpoint. Proverbs is a measuring stick. Proverbs is a self-evaluation examination. It is redemption revealed. Put yourself up against it. As you read Proverbs, put yourself up against it. And do you see the fruit of wisdom sprouting from within yourself because you're born again? Or do you see some manufactured righteousness because, well, it just seems like a good idea. It seems like it would just work. Which do you see? Redemption is revealed in the fruit of wisdom. And if that leaves you unsure about what to do next, then you also need to see the last hook to hang your hat on. And that is that in Proverbs, redemption is revealed in the call of Christ himself. Verse 1, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. Now the one calling, of course, is Jesus himself. We've seen that. And he invites you to wisdom. 
He invites you to come to wisdom. And especially with the undertones of creation that are involved in this particular poem, the implication, it seems, is that God has made all things right and in perfect order. And now, if you are skeptical of the gospel, if you find yourself thinking, I'm not sure that I believe all of this stuff, then the red lights should be absolutely flashing at this point because you have to be saying to yourself, aha, but all is not right. And all is certainly not in perfect order. After all, human error has left environmental disasters scattered across the face of the earth. And injustice has caused orphans and widows and starvation to sweep across entire nations. And disease has left grieving families weary and helpless. And that's neither right nor ordered, you say, in your skepticism. To which Jesus says, finally, you and I agree on something. Because it's not right. And it's not ordered, the world that you see around you. It's neither of those things. And wisdom calls out to you to say, should not that brokenness be fixed? Should not that grief be redeemed? And who will do it? Who will do it if not the architect of creation himself? Because you, skeptic, agree that it's supposed to be right. You agree that it's supposed to be ordered. But you can't explain the brokenness that you see apart from the reality of the fall. And you can't explain the reality of the fall apart from the perfect rightness and order of what was made in the first place by the one who speaks this poem to you. Oh, sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, verse 32. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life. Proverbs is not suggesting that you pursue crafty cleverness or some intellectual trickery. There's no life in that but rather the one who finds Jesus finds wisdom and life because the perfection of the life that's described by Proverbs is not found in anyone else. In Proverbs, redemption is revealed in the mystery of the metaphor. Don't miss the metaphor. Go back to your ninth grade English class. Don't miss the metaphor. In Proverbs, it's revealed in the fruit of wisdom Put yourself up against it and see, is the fruit growing in you because the Spirit is at work? And in Proverbs, redemption is revealed in the call of Christ Himself. Wisdom is calling. Find her and find life. Amen. O Lord, we pray that You would grant to us the life that You offer in Proverbs. Would You cause us to see that you have not given us a manual of the things we ought to be doing, but rather you've given to us a self-evaluation. You've given to us the fruit of wisdom itself so that we might see what it is that you bear in your people as your spirit works, as your spirit brings life to those to whom you call. 
Would you cause us to answer your call and to come yet again to your wisdom, which is Jesus himself, in whose name we pray. Amen.